1985, uh, a guy named Bo Jackson, you might have heard of, uh, won, the, won the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> Georgia people have blocked that out of their mind. Um, he won the Heisman Trophy for being the, the best player in college football. And even though um, he was also a pretty good baseball player, most people thought that his career was going to be uh, in the NFL. He was projected to be the number one draft pick uh, in, the, in the draft that year. And some people thought, well, maybe a baseball team might waste a 20th round draft pick on him just in case he decides to play baseball, but he probably wouldn't. So it's the spring of 1986, and he's, he's had his last football season, and he's finishing his baseball career at Auburn. He's batting about 400. He's being kind of wined and dined by various NFL teams, and one of them, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, wanted to fly him to Tampa Bay. They had the number one pick in the draft. They wanted to fly him to Tampa Bay to just show him what a great place Tampa Bay was. And he asked them, he was going to fly on the owner's private jet, and he asked them, have you cleared this with the NCAA? Is it going to affect my eligibility if I fly to Tampa Bay with you? And they said, we checked. Everything's fine. It's football-related. You're playing baseball. So he flies to Tampa Bay. He comes back. He dresses out for the next baseball game. And his coach walks up to him. And he says, Bo, I need to talk to you a minute. Did you fly to Tampa Bay on the owner's private jet? And he said, yeah, but they checked with the NCAA. They said everything was fine. And he said, nobody checked with the NCAA. Uh, and they've declared you ineligible for the remainder of the baseball season. You're never going to get to play baseball again. And he said, he's just a big guy, and he said he just sat there and wept. But then he decided that the owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Hugh Culverhouse, had done this on purpose. That he saw what a good season he was having in baseball, and before more baseball teams got interested in him, he wanted to cut that short. And so Bo decided that this guy did this on purpose. And so he told him, you can pick me number one in the draft, but I'm not going to play for you. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to offer you so much money, you'll, you'll change your mind. So the draft comes along. Tampa Bay picks him number one choice in the NFL draft. Two months later, the Kansas City Royals pick him in the sixth round of the baseball draft. Tampa Bay offered him $7.2 million for five years, which today that's kind of like, oh, that's nothing. But in 1986, that was a lot of money for an NFL player. The Royals offered him a million dollars for three years. All right, we know he's the best football player around. Maybe he's going to be a great baseball player. $7.2 million, $1 million. He played baseball. He said, no, I told you I wasn't going to play for you. I want to go play baseball. And so he goes and he signs with the Kansas City Royals. Now, I, I was listening to this story uh, on a podcast uh, called Freakonomics. And they were asking the question, they were trying to think of modern-day examples of spite. And they said, is this an example of spite, where you do something for no benefit to yourself, but simply to get back at another person? And they said, well, we kind of think maybe it is, but we don't think it was in Bo Jackson's mind that in his mind, he was simply trying to do the honorable thing. That he had this code he lived by, and it didn't matter if somebody was offering him more money, even if everybody thought he was crazy not to take the more money, he was gonna do what he thought was the right thing. He was gonna live by his code, even if everybody thought that was crazy, even if it cost him money. 
the text we're going to look at this morning, Peter is calling Christians to live by a different code. Now, it's not our own code. It's not a code that we make up, but it's a code that actually comes from God's law. And he's calling us to live by that, but he's saying at the same time, look, if you live by this, everybody's going to think you're crazy because there are going to be times when you turn down the more money, not because of spite or whatever, but because you're trying to live by God's code, that you're going to do the right thing, even though it looks like it's going to bring you no profit, that you're going to do the right thing. I'm calling you to do the right thing, even though it may cause you to suffer because you're being called by your savior to live by this code, even in the midst of suffering. And Peter's going to tell us that and then empower us, hopefully, to actually do that. So uh, look with me at the text, 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm actually, I'm not going to read all this, but we're going to read verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father in heaven, uh, we give you thanks for your word and the chance to to gather together and, and think about it for a moment uh, today. Uh, Father, I pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. Um, this could be the best sermon I've ever preached. It could be the worst sermon I've ever preached. Uh, the reality is it's probably somewhere in between there. But God, no matter where it falls on that spectrum, we know that nothing happens today unless you work supernaturally in our hearts, even as we listen. Uh, and so, God, we would plead with you to do that, to work in us and among us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want to do this morning is to, to simply look at this code that Christians are called to live by. And then look at, for a moment, the resistance that we're going to face if we try to live by this code. Uh, and, and then hopefully see some motivations, the motivations we need to have in place if we're going to be people who live by this code that the scripture calls us to live by. So let's look at the code first of all. Look in verse 2. What is this code? So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the rest of your life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the, the code that you're called to live by uh, the guide that you're supposed to go by is not what you want, but what God wants. Not what you desire, but what God desires. Not your passions, but God's will. Well, what does God desire for us? 
What is his, what is his will for us? First uh, Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What God wants for his people, God's desire for his people, is their sanctification. Now, what's that? What's, what's sanctification? Sanctification is this process whereby someone who's become a believer in Jesus Christ grows in grace. Uh, they grow in holiness. They become more and more like Jesus Christ. Uh, we're made more like Jesus. It's, it's the process in which we become more and more people who love God and love our neighbors as we're supposed to. And what does that look like, loving God and, and loving our neighbors? Well, that involves actually keeping God's commandments. First uh, John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, think about the Ten Commandments. We're not going to go through all of them. But you can roughly break them down into these first four that show us what it looks like to love God and the second six that show us what it looked like to love our neighbor. Uh, in other words, we don't just kind of come up with our own ways of doing this thing. Uh, but in the first four commandments, commandments like thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These show us here's what it looks like to love God. The second six commandments. Uh, don't steal. Don't murder. Don't lie. These things show us what it looks like to actually love our neighbor. And so we can't divorce loving God from keeping his commandments. Now, the reality is God calls or God's will is for everybody to keep his commandments. That everybody on the face of the earth love God and love their neighbor. The problem, according to the Bible, is that that we don't do that. Now, there's lots of places in the Bible we could, could point that out. Uh, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Ephesians 2, let me read briefly uh, to you from Ephesians. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so there's this basic storyline to the Bible that because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because of our refusal to do God's will, we are actually those who are dead in our sins. Uh, our relationship with God is, is broken. We are actually, the scripture says here, under his wrath because of our failure to obey him. And so that's the situation we're in by nature. And then the dilemma we face is, well, how then can I be bought, brought into a right relationship with God? Uh, how can his wrath be turned away? How can my sins be forgiven? And that brings us back to the catechism question we talked about this morning, right? That it's, that it's at the cross that Jesus pays the penalty for my sin. If, if in this hand is a record of all the sins that I've committed, at the cross, that's credited to Jesus' account, and Jesus pays for them there. If in this hand is all the obedience Jesus has offered, his life of perfect obedience, and when I believe the gospel, that's actually credited to my account. And so that now in Christ, God sees me not as someone who is a, a sinner, but as someone who is a saint. Not because 
I have obeyed God perfectly, but because Jesus has. And so I'm reconciled to God, not by my good deeds, but through the cross, through the obedience of Jesus Christ. I don't contribute anything to that. I don't add my good works to that. I'm not saved by my good works. I'm saved by Jesus' good works. But because I'm saved by Jesus' good works, I'm called now to do good works. I'll read another verse from Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. All right, this is just what we've been saying. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We can't boast about our standing before God because it's all about Jesus and not about us. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not saved by good works, but saved in order to do good works. Not saved because of my ability to do God's will, but saved to begin to do God's will. All right, let's, let's say, let's try this illustration. Uh, let's say that you're somebody who has no musical ability whatsoever, all right? Whenever you pick up a guitar and play, like this, this evil noise comes out, all right? And everybody around you kind of does that scream picture, you know, they're like, please, please stop pr- playing. Um, and, and let's say that, that I'm leading a band and I say to you, look, Here's, what I, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to invite you to join my band even though you have no ability to play whatsoever. And you're going to, be able, you're going to stay in the band even though I know you're going to miss some notes probably badly here and there. But I'm calling you to be in this band and I actually have this supernatural ability to create within you a musical heart. Okay? And so that now as you come and you become a part of this band you're still going to play badly at times, but, but your heart, your musical heart's been changed so that now you're actually able to play beautiful music, to play good music. And the more you practice, the better you're going to get, the more natural this has become for you to play this music. It, it, you're still going to sound some bad notes from time to time, but something's fundamentally changed about you. See, the Bible says that when we come to Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, but God actually breaks the power of sin over us. And he gives us this new, not musical heart, but he gives us this new spiritual heart. And so that now, while we still have the ability to run after our old desires, to do things we shouldn't do, and we're going to talk about some more in a minute, we now also within us have the ability to keep God's law as we rely on Jesus Christ, to make beautiful music, to love God, to love our neighbor as ourself. And that's what he wants from us. All right, that's what makes sense. It wouldn't make sense for you to come up to the band and say, I'm just going to keep screwing up and playing horrible sounding music. Right? You, if you had this ability to make good music, you would want to improve on that and to see that continue to be fostered in your life. And so as we come to God, as he has saved us, as he changes us, as he equips us, he's given us this ability to make beautiful music with our lives. And Peter's calling us to that. That's the code he's calling us to follow. The will of God, to do God's will, to obey his commandments, 
to have the scripture as the authority in our lives. Uh, one of the reasons we say, we'll talk about this in your members class, is that at Grace we're committed to the authority of the scriptures. In other words, it's not what I want that I go by, but it's what God wants that I seek to go by. That this is the code for my life. And so Peter calls us to that. All right? But then he warns us that we're going to face resistance as we go about trying to do God's will. Even though we have new hearts, even though we're changed people, there's still going to be resistance as we seek to go about doing God's will. And that resistance, he tells us, comes from two places. Some of it's going to come from inside of us, and some of it's going to come from outside of us. Uh, look, look at verse 2 again. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The first source of resistance for us can be our own human desires. What Peter calls here are human passions. Uh, in chapter 2, he urged us to abstain from these passions that he said wage war against our soul. Like they, they really are are going after us. The, the passions of our flesh, our, our sinful nature, resist our desires to do the will of God. They try to pull us in the other direction. Uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so that's part of the dilemma of the Christian life. Now, some of you hear that, and, and you've been a Christian a while, and you're like, well, yeah, duh, why are you wasting the whole point on that? We all know that, okay? That's, so why don't we come every week? Because we're still struggling with this. It's part of it. But I think it's, it's especially important if you are a, a young believer, if you haven't been a Christian very long, because often you can start thinking, well, I've become a Christian, and I've got this new heart, and I'm supposed to be playing this beautiful music, but too often, there's still really bad music coming out uh, in, in my life. Am I, am I really a Christian if I still have these desires? A, am I really a Christian when I, when I want to do the right thing, but then I find myself at time doing the wrong thing and, and even wanting to do the wrong thing? Why is it like that? Why is my, why is my life like that? I mean, here's why. When, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ... It's like an army has invaded the land of you, okay? Uh, and, and, and they've taken over your heart. They've kind of taken over the control center of, of your body. And they've set up shop there. They put a new heart in even. And there's new clean blood coursing through your body and through your blood vessels and through your veins. But there's lots of pockets of disease still in your body. Lots of pockets of sinful uh, resistance that's left hanging around. And those pockets don't go away easily. See, even though there's, you're fundamentally a new person, you're fundamentally a new you, you've got a new nature, there's still these remnants of sin, this sinful nature, the old you, that are hanging around, and they're still resisting what the new you wants to do. It's like guerrilla warfare. And that really is what the Christian life is like. If you're experiencing that, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian, it means you are a Christian, because you're not just 
willingly going along with your desires, you're actually saying, you know what, I, I don't want to do that any longer, even though it's fighting against me. That's why that tension is there, because God's placed this new heart within you. Um, there are just these days when we say, you know what, I, 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 I just want to sin. I don't, I don't want to help with the kids right now. I don't want to go to worship today. I don't, I don't want to obey my parents. There are these remnants of the flesh left, and we still at times find ourselves not doing God's will. We face resistance, but it's coming from within us. But Peter's saying here, and, and this is probably his main point here, there's also going to be resistance from outside of us to doing God's will. The pushback doesn't just come from me. It does come from me, but the pushback also comes from outside of me. Look at, look at verse 4. With respect to this, and talking about all the, the sins that they used to commit, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Peter says that when you begin to devote yourself to doing God's will, instead of doing what people like to do by nature, that that's going to surprise people? That's going to catch people off guard? And that people will even malign you, they'll heap abuse on you, is how the NIV translates it, because you're trying to live by this new code that's different from the code that everybody else is living by. Um, young people, youth, there, there's a good chance that at some point along the way you're going to be made fun of for taking a stand for Christ. Uh, for saying, you know what, I don't want to look at stuff like that on the internet, even though everybody else is. I don't want to watch that movie, even though everybody else watching that kind of movie. I'm not going to go out uh, and get drunk with you, even though everybody says that's what we ought to be doing. I'm not going to join you in, in making fun of somebody else. And if you take that stand, you'll be maligned. You'll be pressured. You'll be made fun of. Uh, adults, we know that, that works in the adult world as well. You might get pressured to cut a corner at work. Uh, you might just speak your mind on what you think about an issue and uh, face persecution for that. In uh, England recently, there was a nurse, and one of her coworkers asked her what she thought about homosexuality, and she didn't make any kind of statement about gay marriage or anything like that. She just said, I think homosexuality is a sin. And she was fired because of that. And that's becoming more and more prevalent, that there's pushback on that issue as we say, hey, this is just the code we're trying to live by. And the world around us is saying, no, you can't live by that code. Uh, we're not going to allow that. Another place this comes up, I think, for us is the issue of the exclusivity uh, of Christianity. That we proclaim as a church what the Bible proclaims, that Jesus is the only way to know God. Uh, Tim Keller talks about the situation where he was actually on a panel, and it was him and a Jewish rabbi uh, and a Muslim cleric as well. And they were answering very, various questions, and they all agreed with each other. They agreed with each other. The religious leaders agreed with each other that they all couldn't be right about God. They understood that. Uh, it, that if the Muslim was right about God, then the other two people were by necessity wrong. 
That if the Jewish person was right about everything about God, then the other two were by necessity wrong. That if the Christian was right about God, then the other two by necessity were wrong. You couldn't just have this mismatch. They all understood this as representatives of their various religions. They got all kind of pushback from the students in the crowd. Uh, they said, you guys are just intolerant. Another of them said, we'll never come to know peace on earth if religious leaders keep making such exclusive claims. And yet they were simply proclaiming actually what their religions taught. Uh, I heard someone praying before a, a football game not too long ago. And the prayer, it just struck me that they didn't even mention, they couldn't even mention the word God. Like they didn't know how to start the prayer because they were worried like, so somebody's going to sue somebody if we actually prayed a specific deity. And so they couldn't even use like the word God. It just started out as we thank you. And I'm like, well, who are you talking to? Um, and, and then you, you, you end the prayer and just say amen. And there's no reference to any deity at all. This American God that we've made up, this faceless God doesn't exist. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You may agree with that, you may disagree with that, but that's the claim, that's Christianity 101. But if you, if you take that stand, if you make that statement, you're going to be maligned by those who disagree with that, much as these speakers were maligned for that. So, we're called not to live for human passions, but to live for the will of God. Peter warns you, though, there's going to be pushback on that. There's going to be pushback from within you. There's also at times going to be pushback from outside of you. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're called to obey God, to live by this code, even if it has consequences, even if it costs you, even if it means that you have to suffer. So where do we find then the motivation for doing that? For trying to live by this code, even if it costs me something. Uh, four things in the text really quick. Uh, one, look, look at what he says in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, and so forth. And it's kind of a sarcastic comment he makes. It's kind of like, you've spent enough time wasting your life. Did that, that, that's what you were doing when you were living in that way. You were, you were just wasting your life, and you can see that now. So let the time that was passed suffice us for that. Let's, let's move on from that. Uh, the second thing he says, look in, in, in verse 5. Speaking of those who malign you, he says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That the people who persecute you, the people who malign you, that, that, that God's going to take care of that. Uh, they'll have to give an account to him. Uh, unless they repent, unless they believe the gospel, then there's no hope for them. You, but you do what's right. You follow God and you let God sort all that out. Uh, thirdly, and this is kind of his main point here. He says, you need to think about suffering like Jesus did. Uh, verse 1, 
Uh, and it's a difficult verse, but let's read it. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, I think the point of this is something along the lines of, Jesus had decided that he was going to do the will of God, even if it meant suffering. Uh, the most obvious example of that is in the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to the crucifixion where Jesus is praying in Luke 22 and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. For Jesus, it was more important to do the will of his Father than it was to be comfortable and to avoid suffering. And Peter's saying that's important for us as well. That we need to, ahead of time, begin to cultivate that attitude in our hearts. Uh, to cultivate the attitude that it's more important to obey the will of the Father than it is to be comfortable and to avoid suffering. Because obeying God is going to involve suffering. Right? E even if it's not coming from without. Uh, even if it's just not doing, denying yourself something that you would kind of like to do, there's suffering involved in that, right? Uh, if you're on a low-carb diet and you walk in here on Sunday morning, there's eight boxes of Krispy Kreme back there. All right, and you say, okay, I'm not going to eat it this morning, right? There, there's suffering involved in that. I'm hurting really badly right now. Um, but there, there's suffering involved in that. It's a type of suffering. It's the same thing anytime we tell ourselves no. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to go there. There's a type of suffering involved in that. Uh, remember the Lord of the Rings and, and how hard it was to let go of the ring, to let go of my precious. Because our sins really can be precious to us. And so it's hard and it involves suffering to let them go. And so Peter's saying, if you're going to set off along this path to obey God, you need to have the mind of Christ in you at the beginning. That it is going to cost me something. There is going to be suffering involved if I'm actually going to obey God. Because I'm going to have to say no to my desires and yes to his desires. Now, we need to hear that, but I think we need to hear something more than that if we're really going to be empowered to live the Christian life and we're not just doing it because we're supposed to do it. I want you to hear why Jesus was willing to suffer. Why did he have this attitude? Um, listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did, why did Jesus willingly suffer? Do you hear it in there? Was it was because it was his duty? Well, yeah, I guess. Was it because he had a relationship with the Father? Yes. But the writer of Hebrews says that it was because of the joy set before him. He willingly endured the cross. Now, what was the joy set before him? Well, it was the joy of, of being reunited with his father. It was the joy of sitting at his right hand. But it was the joy also of his people. The joy of seeing his people, seeing his bride, 
redeemed from her sins. His joy was found in you. He gave up his life because there was no other way to make his bride clean. There was no other way to bring you to God. There was no other way to bring you home. There was no other way to make you whole. There was no other way to make you without sin. And that was his joy to do. Was to rescue you. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. For the joy set before him. The joy of being united with his bride, his people. Who were cleansed and without sin. Uh, World War II, Ernest Gordon was in a um, Japanese, he was a British captive in a Japanese prison camp. Uh, and he writes about his experiences there in a, in a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai. And it's later been made into a movie called To End All Wars. And he said he was in this prison camp and there was this one occasion where all of the tools at the end of the day were being accounted for. And the guard came up after they had finished. He said, look, there's a shovel missing. You guys are one shovel short. And he began to yell and scream at them. It's like, you know, somebody's, somebody's finding that shovel. Somebody, you stolen that shovel and you need to give it back. He's like, look, whoever's guilty, you need to step forward now and take your punishment. Bring the shovel back. Take the punishment. Let's move on. Nobody owned up to it. Nobody admitted to have study, uh, taken the shovel. And so finally the guard just starts yelling. He's like, all die. All die. All of you. And he, and he cocked his pistol and he pointed it at the prisoners. And it was at that moment that one of the prisoners stepped forward. He said, I did it. I did it. And the guard proceeded to, to beat him to death with a club because he had confessed to stealing the shovel. And his friends carried him away and they counted the shovels again and they weren't missing any shovels. And this one man had willingly stepped forward to rescue everybody staying, standing behind him to spare the people standing behind him. Now, that's not a perfect illustration uh, because God is not a, a, a ranting prison guard. And we are not people who are innocent. Um, we are people who are guilty, who actually have stolen the shovel, so to speak. And yet Jesus, one who has, not, has done nothing wrong, steps forward and he says, I did it. I did it. And he takes the punishment that we actually deserve because he loves us. He suffered for us because he loves us. One last thing Peter points us to really quickly. Uh, the last verse. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Well, this is another difficult verse, and I don't think it means that Jesus went and preached to dead people, uh, but that the gospel had been proclaimed to some people who had heard the gospel and now they had died. And, and what of them? And what Peter is pointing us to is the resurrection. 
that even though they have died, even though they may have suffered for their faith, the reality for them is resurrection life. And so he's telling us not only is there joy, not only was there joy ahead of Jesus as he walked through the valley of suffering, there's joy that's ahead for us as well. And he points us to Jesus, and then he points us forward to what awaits. Well, we're called to live uh, by a code. Living by that code involves suffering at time, at times. But the one he calls you to live by it is the one who suffered himself because he loves you. Let me pray for us. Father, um, I, I just pray that in this we would see your love for sinners. I pray that within us you would really stir up the longing to do your will, even when it hurts, even when it, um, even when there are consequences, even when it costs us something. Um, God, that's hard for us to do. Um, being comfortable is a big idol in all of our lives. Uh, so I pray that you would work in us a willingness uh, to love you and to demonstrate that love by keeping your commandments, even when it's the hard thing to do. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.